time for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I love my Right View Roundtable. We have a great time every week. And we have joining us tonight two people. Actually, we're on Facebook Live. If you're just pulling in your driveway and you've been listening on the radio and then you have to go in the house, just Go ahead and turn on your computer, and America Can We Talk is live on our Facebook page. It's fun to watch it there, too. My right view roundtable tonight, I have Lori Medina, been here many times, and Kirby Anderson, and I'm so glad to have him join us. Kirby is, I'm telling you because you can't do anything about it because we're on air. Kirby retains every fact he's ever read his entire life. So one time I was, and he has a radio show called Point of View, and we were off air, and I was saying something about when... Justice Scalia got appointed to the Supreme Court or something like that. And I said some year he goes, no, it was such and such. And right then, the whoever it was, oh, Warren Kelly came in and he goes, are you questioning Kirby's knowledge? <laughs> no, I'm not, I swear. <laughs> he is just a um, wonderful fount of uh, important knowledge. So in our second hour, we always kick off our Right View Roundtable question of the week. And we have the Trump budget out. And I just want to start off by asking, uh, you know, Trump releases first budget. It calls for $54 billion with a B, cuts in domestic spending and using the mind to beef up the military. Obviously a huge bill, tons to say about it. But I guess my big question is, you know, he ran on, you know, government's big and wasteful. Is this is this budget, you know, too aggressive? Is it too timid? What's your kind of gut reaction to start with? And I was going to start with Kirby if you want. Well, the first thing is, is we're talking about $54 billion. That sounds like a lot of money, but we're talking about a $3.8 trillion budget. And so this is like one and a half percent. It's almost a rounding error. And all the hue and cry that you're going to hear over the next couple of weeks is really going to amount to very little. Because sadly, even though a president oftentimes puts forward a budget, most of the time Congress adds in all sorts of things. We'll talk about Big Bird and we'll talk about all sorts of other issues in just a minute. But imagine if you came up to somebody that told you that they spend $38,000 a year, but they only make about $30,000 a year. You'd say, well, you're in kind of trouble (laughs) And then if they were to tell you that they were also $200,000 in debt, <laughs> you would say, you're not broke. You're $200,000 past broke. Well, all they did was take the number of the federal government and the federal debt and just reduce some zeros. Because we each year spend $3.8 trillion. We bring in about $3 trillion. And we have, what, $20 trillion in debt. So every time you hear somebody during this next couple of weeks talk about, we can't cut a corporation for public broadcasting, we can't cut the National Endowment for the Arts, just remind yourself that we are talking about a government, it's not broke, it's $20 trillion past broke. And that is just the online debt. If you actually look at all our obligations, it's about $100 trillion. So then to stand there and say, we can't cut Planned Parenthood, we can't cut the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, we should cut that and a whole lot more, actually. Absolutely. I love that numerical analogy. I mean, I can retain that, and I'm not that great with numbers. That was really good. Lori, what's your basic well, thing on the budget? Well, I, I absolutely agree with Kirby. I, I think this, uh, it was a good start. It was is a great thing that we're cutting $44, $54 billion. Uh, But if you look at the stuff that's cut, it really, it's just a big kiss to the conservatives. That's really what it is. It's uh, saying, mm, and thank you for electing Trump as president. Uh, you know, and I, I will tell you, though, one of the uh, kind of the delights that I see in this is the fact that uh, they're adding the $54 billion 
to the uh, the defense spending, and then they're taking it away in these domestic programs. And, you know, I'm reminded of uh, there was the old movie. It was back in 93. I had to look it up because I remember what year it was. It was called Dave, and it was starring Kevin Klein. Do you remember the movie? I sure do. And it was about um, uh, the, the real president uh, went into a coma or something. They found a guy that looked exactly like him, and so he was like an imposter stand-in so they could fool the public to figure out what to do with the guy that was dying. And so he started acting and, you know, doing the presidential duties, and so he had a uh, a little program he wanted funding for, and everybody, all his guys around him said, oh, no, there's no money, there's no money for this. And so he gathered all of his uh, uh, cabinet heads in a room, and he said, Okay, um, can't you get rid of that thing you're doing over there and give me, you know, two hundred thousand? And can't you, you know, give me a couple of million here? And so he took a little bit from each group to put together money for his. Own. So it was a very romantic view that Hollywood has of how Washington works. And I kind of saw a little bit of this in, you know, uh, that in this, and I, I loved it. So I mean, so I like that part of it. It needs to be more though. And EPA go away. It does. I, I would be happy they just defund it entirely. We have about a minute left. I'll throw my two cents in. I really like that we have a president who is just so refreshingly blunt that we can talk about things that many politicians were, were afraid to talk about. I really wish he would just talk about, and he. I think President Trump probably will, eventually we have to... You know, he didn't talk about during the campaign, but he's a money guy. We have to reform entitlements. This didn't even begin to touch entitlements, begin to touch government dependency. So down the line, I hope next year, he says, and this was, I was almost hoping he hit it this year, and then he could backpedal a little bit and, and then say, okay, next year. But this is one thing, if you're really going to come in, you talk, Kirby talk about $20 trillion in debt. you got to start talking about a lot of numbers that have to go and expectations that have to change and visions of what the government does. We have 10 seconds left here. The I last think they thing. said, I think I think they said that's coming later this year. I, I certainly hope so. I will say the government's job is not to put Big Bird on television. We never should have been funding NPR to start with any more than we should be funding with tax dollars, Rush Limbaugh or some conservatives. So I'm, the cuts with NPR, endowment, all that stuff, don't even debate it. We're done with that. But we're going to have to do even more. This is Debbie George Jasmine, right View Roundtable, Kirby Anderson, Lori Medina. Don't go away. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact... First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit firstliberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's firstliberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to firstliberty.org now. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. I want to tell you why I do this radio show, America Can We Talk? In my life, I've been a full-time attorney, a wife, and a stay-at-home mom, a volunteer at our kids' schools and sports teams, and a political activist. I've been active in many political campaigns, organizations, and events, from the grassroots level to elected leadership roles, and from volunteer to paid consultant. 
one theme that runs through my life since my days of majoring in political science in college has been a continually growing admiration for the idea of America. And that gets me to why I do this show. America is the most important political idea in the world. Everything good and great about America is the result of these ideas of America. Things like the rule of law, limited power in the federal government, separation of powers, protection of individual rights of each citizen. So in my show, we talk about the events and stories of the day, always tied back to preserving the ideas of America. The National Center for Policy Analysis brings together the best and brightest minds to tackle the country's most difficult public policy problems in healthcare, taxes, retirement, education, energy, and now national security. The NCPA works to develop and promote private free market alternatives to government regulation and control, solving problems by relying on the strength of competition in the private sector. As America's think tank, the NCPA wants to make sure you have access to simple, clear solutions to the issues that matter to you. Come get to know the NCPA at one of their events and join the conversation by following them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. To get policy solutions delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for the NCPA free email newsletter or subscribe to one of their policy blogs. To get involved with America's Think Tank, go online today to ncpa.org. The NCPA would love your support and you'll love being part of the solutions to America's challenges. So go to ncpa.org. That's ncpa.org. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk Love. I'm right at View Roundtable. Joining me tonight, I have Kirby Anderson, Lori Medina. So I want to keep talking about the budget. We had our Right View Roundtable thing, our quick top of the hour thing, but I think it's actually really consequential. I mean, obviously it is for a number of reasons. One is that Trump just got, he did things that people have been saying Republicans should do. I know it's minor, but, you know, NPR, little things like that, finally, you know, doing things that, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, a friend of mine went to the uh, rally yesterday for Pete Sessions here in our, our congressman here in uh, the great state of Texas, uh, CD32 is Pete Sessions. And um, this person who called me said, you know, it was, that he thought it sounded like even Pete was already kind of backpedaling. I'm not too sure about this budget thing. What I'm worried about, tell you, is I think that everyone, Kirby was saying earlier, but you know, it's great to propose all these cuts, but then everyone says, well, geez, not, not, not my program, not, not this thing. So I hope we will see from Republicans who've run for decades on cutting government. Now we have the Senate and the House and the White House. How much are they really going to do or are they not going to do it at all? So I don't want you, you both have things you want to say about the budget. I don't know. 
Well, I love that the greatest uh, the, the greatest percentage cut was from the EPA. Um, and again, that's a big thank you to conservatives. The fact that he's he really wants to cut deep on EPA. Uh, the, the other group that he cut was uh, was education. And I believe he cut like 16 percent of their budget. And from everybody I'm reading, they're saying, why didn't you cut 84 more? Eighty four percent more. Um, so, you know, the big bird thing is ridiculous. We all know how many millions, hundreds of millions of dollars they're worth. They make every year. Uh, they pay their executives an exorbitant amount. And and then they it's are your tax dollars. And they are still funded. Uh, by us, you know, think of all the small businesses out there that struggle, you know, and fight for every penny and dime they make and work so hard and pay taxes to our government. And then here's these these huge conglomerates that are that are given these, you know, little bonuses from the government every year. So, listen, I think it's a great start. Um, I love the concept between hard power, soft power. I think that was I think that's a great introduction. That's a great use of terms. I think people understand that of of saying we're going to put our money towards our defense, which is hard power versus soft power in the State Department. And they took a lot from the state, which I love that, too. So I I think they were getting out of control. Yeah. I love the basic concept of reminding us our priorities, what the federal government exists. What's the purpose of the federal government is not to entertain small children with Big Bird. It is to defend the, the country, defend us and have our national defense be up to speed, our, our equipment, our soldiers, have everyone ready to fight and defend this country. Well, let's again, let's go back to uh, some of the things that we are seeing on the table for being cut. And these are things conservatives have been talking about for a long time. The Legal Service Corporation in the 1970s, they were talking about this. When Ronald Reagan was elected in 1981, that was 36 years ago, they were talking about actually defunding the Department of Education. But then they said, oh, we kind of like Bill Bennett. We like Gary Bauer, so we'll keep it around. <laughs> uh, they've talked about all these other cuts, and this is part of the problem. We actually have to give credit to uh, President Trump and with the fact that he put on that list things that people have been talking about for years. Mm-hmm. Now let's get back to reality. The reality is is that everybody is for, or at least many people are for, cutting the size and scope of government until their program is going to be cut. And that's going to be the real challenge. And if you think, well, it, how bad would it be if we cut back? Just recognize that when we have a snow day in Washington, D.C., what do they do? They send all the non-essential people home. And I'm going, if they're non-essential, let's leave them at home. And Dr. Merrill Matthews has been on my program with you and me before. And he says, you know, he's actually talked to people in the bureaucracy. And when I was at Georgetown University, I actually went into some of the bureaucracies. And there are people that you go to some of the desks and say, who sits at that desk? And they say, I'm not really sure. What does he do? I don't really know. Uh, How many people in this department could you cut without it affecting your effectiveness? Oh, probably 40 percent. This is a bloated government that deserves to be cut. And uh, once you begin to understand that. You can understand all the hue and cry that we're going to hear over the next couple of weeks about how draconian these budget cuts are. And they are less than really more than about a percent of the entire federal budget. So uh, uh, the the liberals favorite scientist or one of their favorite scientists, which is he's really a pretend scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, he put out a tweet that said, uh, we can all imagine a land. That pro- I'm going to go to my liberal voice here. <laughs> we we can all imagine a land that provides no support for art, but is that a place you'd want to live, to visit, to play? So, you know, 
It's these kinds of ridiculous statements. They're, they're saying we have no art in this country because we're not paying, uh, uh, you know, uh, Big Bird. And that's ridiculous. Do, you know, if, if you paid money to go to the movie theater, if you w- bought a movie at Redbox, if you paid a direct TV bill, if you, you know. If you go to the Dallas Museum of Art you, and buy right, a ticket right. to get in. Yeah. yeah. So it's crazy. And then to take money from a steel worker in Pittsburgh who can barely support his family so that then the Pittsburgh Symphony can exist. Exactly. Is just, again, what we would consider injustice. Exactly. Right. That's a great analogy. I mean, that really, you know, physical, same city, a steelworker barely feeding the family and the symphony. You know, the other thing that's going to happen over the next few weeks in, in discussing this budget is the uh, the willingness of the media and people on the left to paint some of this as heartless. And one example that the they were out with right away yesterday was, what about Meals on Wheels? They're going to starve the Meals on Wheels program. And let me just make clear a couple of quick things. Kirby, I guess you want to say something, too, but I'll say two quick things. One is... The federal government doesn't fund Meals on Wheels. Mm-hmm. It sends money to for via community block grants to, uh, I guess it's to counties. I think it goes to counties. But anyway, and they in turn, or maybe it's cities, and they in turn decide how to use this federal money. And there were there was a list, I think I didn't print it out because I only print out 150 pages of paper coming here tonight. <laughs> but there was a page I didn't print out that listed ridiculous things that jurisdictions in America have spent CDBG, community block grant um there's another word. Anyway, whatever. They have used it for silly expenditures, unnecessary expenditures. And the point being that the city of Dallas, the county of Dallas, can continue to fund Meals on Wheels with their community block grant money if they choose to. And if they choose to cut back on Meals on Wheels, then they're making that decision based on the money available from Washington. But the, So the point is there wasn't a direct funding by meal, of Meals on Wheels to start with, and it wasn't all along something that we had this block granting so that local entities, local government entities, decide what they need in their community. You may have very few seniors, and so we may have a lot of seniors. And the other related point is that every bit of charity like that, where you just, it just diminishes the incentive of private citizens to do something. You hear about churches saying, we want to get involved in such and such. You realize, well, it's actually all funded by the government. So, you know, you're, you just be in the way. The government already does that. But the idea of re-incentivizing charities, especially churches, but other charities, to do good work, to do kindness toward each other, and then you create a community feel more than you do from uh, money f- flooding in from Washington that takes care of our needs. I think there's a really wholesome community development idea. We still have two and a half minutes left, I don't know, in the segment. They can't see the clock like I can so well let me just talk about the federal golden rule he who has the gold makes the rules and so (laughs) just think about this for a minute meals on wheels you go and deliver a meal and this person is really hurting you want to pray with him but you can't do that because it's a federal grant but our churches would be providing that all the time and again when you look at all the charity in the United States or even charity that goes overseas Individual charity far outstrips the federal government, and that is where individuals can get involved in dealing with all the issues of an individual. If I'm simply providing a federal grant, I can't address some of the spiritual, psychological, and social issues because that's not allowed. So actually, we would be better off if we did not fund some of those programs. And it turns out on some of those block grants, there is a lot of hue and cry about something that's not going to happen anyway. Yeah, we still have a minute and a half. Yeah. Well, I was going to say earlier, right when you were closing the last segment, you mentioned that this doesn't touch the entitlements. And supposedly, this is like the 
the the big domestic discretionary spending cuts that they're doing, and then they they kind of want this to. I think their strategy is they want this to kind of settle in, sink in. The yes, people, yeah. and with the congressman, with the people, and everything, and then they're going to do the entitlement because that's going to be tied into the tax cuts and all that. I think that's going to come out later this year. I think I really hope so. I think oh, it's I do a beautiful too. I do thing. too. Yeah, you know, um, on this point about the charity and the difference in culture it creates. You know, we and you probably did this with your children, but you know, we used to do when the kids were growing up. I can't remember the name of the program, but you know, you they it was a lovely charity, and they had food that was donated. But the point was. You actually saw the people who were in need come in. They would see us. We would talk to them. We would help them. And this charity also, because it was privately funded, was keeping track. And so you couldn't come in and, and, you know, lock, stock, and barrel take a lot. They were saying, well, you've been here three days ago. You know, you got enough food then for a week. So they were really creating a feeling of responsibility by the recipients, a sense of connection to the community. It got to, we did it so often that some of the people come back and say, oh, hi, hi. They recognize our faces. And they they felt like, wow, this is somebody you know right in my community who's helping me and we felt like we're seeing their families and these are real people not just random recipients of government charity it it creates community connection which is a wholesome and healthy thing for america and on that note we are up on our next break okay he's gonna start playing music while i'm trying to talk because he always does this but i do want to encourage you to stay tuned because we are turning to the other big issue that's been uh, just brewing which uh, has to do with the federal court judge in hawaii striking down President Trump's most recent refugee order to protect Americans. It's outrageous on a number of levels. Don't go away. America guarantees each eligible adult citizen the right to vote. The Public Interest Legal Foundation, a 501c3 public interest law firm, is dedicated entirely to election integrity, to assuring that voter rolls include names of only citizens eligible to vote, and that protections are in place to prevent voter fraud of all kinds. The Public Interest Legal Foundation discovered that more than 1,000 non-citizens enrolled to vote in Virginia in just eight counties, and in Philadelphia, felons as well as non-citizens are on the voter rolls. Non-citizens have been registering to vote and voting. The Public Interest Legal Foundation is fighting nationwide and in Texas to ensure that only Americans pick American leaders. We are actively litigating high-impact cases to clean up voter rolls and protect the ballot box. If you do not want your vote canceled out, visit publicinterestlegal.org to join us in the fight to restore integrity to American elections. Protect your vote. Visit publicinterestlegal.org today. If you want to get at the issues that really matter for women and men, Go to IWF.org. That's the Independent Women's Forum. IWF is all about increasing the number of American women who value free markets and personal liberty. IWF's motto is all issues are women's issues. They bring a fact-based approach to politics, policy, and culture. When the left tried to peddle a phony war on women, IWF shot back with facts and figures. American women aren't victims in need of ever-increasing government protection. And IWF doesn't think things are perfect, but they believe that individual liberty is the key to prosperity and fulfillment. Along with their sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, IWVoice.org, which is a leader in the fight against Obamacare, they offer policy papers, op-eds, and a popular blog on issues of the day. So visit IWF at IWF.org. That's IWF.org. 
Texans have a long tradition of independence, and we don't like being told what to do, especially by liberal bureaucrats 1,000 miles away. That's why for 30 years, the Dallas-based Institute for Policy Innovation has fought Washington's efforts to take more of your money and freedom. IPI works every day to keep taxes low and freedom high to promote free market health care, expand energy security, protect intellectual property, and combat onerous regulations that destroy American jobs. Politicians often talk smaller government, but then vote for more of it. By contrast, IPI has never veered from its mission to defend the Constitution and fight for freedom. If you want to be informed about free market policies and solutions, go to IPI's website and sign up. All of their information is free for sharing. Help IPI restore liberty and economic growth. Go to IPI.org today. That's IPI.org. One more time, go to IPI.org today. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are tens of thousands of Heritage members and supporters in North Texas alone. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates on the fight for America from Heritage President Jim DeMint, plus exclusive invitations to conservative events right here in Dallas or wherever you are in America. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. And welcome back. I'm Debbie George Abbas, America Can We Talk, my right view roundtable tonight, Kirby Anderson, Lori Medina. Well, you know, it's funny, this story, I, every week I obviously read a bunch of stories and try to think what will be the most exciting things and interesting things to talk about. We only have these two hours. And of course, at the top of the list, kind of going on a week, was this Hawaii federal district court judge who threw out President Trump's, his second iteration of this refugee order, or as I like to call it, the Protecting America order. And so this federal judge um, went after the order and also, the, and so, and so he struck it down. And I do want to, we're going to talk about this, but I want to share two things with you. We have clips I sent to the uh, station. One was, I was in uh, Washington this past week, as I mentioned earlier, at National Review, and I got to meet Mark Krikorian, who is the head of Center for Immigration Studies. I mean, just a fount of knowledge. And so I interviewed him, recorded it, and I want to play a little segment that he had to say about this federal court judge striking down the um, the uh, refugee ruling. Refugee right order. now, President Trump has had his second executive order relating to essentially trying to protect America with respect to the refugees coming here and, and controlling them and be able to understand who's coming here. He's had his second order struck down by a federal court this time by a federal court in Hawaii, and I believe since then Maryland has also struck down. And, you know, I, you've written some brilliant points about this, but what's your reaction to the idea that a federal court is striking down an order by the U.S. president relating to refugee policy? Yeah, it's it's outrageous. I mean, it really it's almost beyond immigration at this point. This is really an issue of self-government because Congress has explicitly authorized the president 
to keep out any alien or any class of aliens. That's the language in the law that he thinks it's necessary to do. And that's all the president has done here. And frankly, the measures, the executive orders, they're not even all that sweeping. They're really just temporary holds. It's a hitting the pause button. If this sticks, what this really does is move control of immigration policy, or at least veto power over immigration policy, to the judiciary. And that's absolutely outrageous. I mean, this is a basic element of sovereignty. To the extent that judges get away with this, the people are simply no longer sovereign. The judges are saying that you, the people, through Congress and the president, whom you've elected, are not allowed to keep out people that we think should be allowed in. And that is a, literally is a threat to self-government and constitutional order. Forget about the immigration side of it. Okay, so that was Mark Krikorian, the president of Center for Immigration Studies. We had a long interview. He's just very insightful. But, you know, there's been a lot of reaction in the media this week on the this federal judge's second time Trump's immigration order has been struck down. And in both cases, in fact, in this case, the judge was very open, just saying that this he thought this was a violation of the Establishment Clause, which, if all of you... I'm sure you know the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, the relation to religious freedom, says that Congress cannot make a law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise. So he's arguing that people who live in whatever country it is have rights guaranteed by the United States Constitution. So maybe I have rights guaranteed by the Norwegian Constitution. That could be true. And who wants to rail on this? Well, first of all, we're talking about Judge Derek Watson. we got to say his name, and he was a Harvard Law mm-hmm. School classmate of... Barack Obama. Uh-huh. So let's remember that part. Okay. Uh, point number one is standing. Now, again, that's a legal term, and you've gone to Georgetown Law School, and I've been to Georgetown, and we know a little bit about standing, but that is, do you have a right to sue? Well, they're arguing that because somebody's feelings might be hurt, that's giving you standing in Hawaii, or because, back to the point you're making, that because an individual is in another country, they have religious liberty. Now, see the irony here. We have situations right now where we're saying we are denying religious liberty rights to a florist in the state of Washington. We're denying religious liberty rights to uh, bakers in Oregon. But we're going to extend religious liberty rights to individuals living in Somalia, Sudan, in Libya. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I mean, this is just the, the most incredible. Hypocrisy of the left knows no limits. That's such a good analogy. Such a good analogy. You're going to... Well, you, you know, I, yeah, I mean, the fact that he is Obama's school chum, I mean, is telling that that's who the judge is. Um, but, you know, I mean, this this speaks to the greater problem that, Debbie, we've been talking about for how long on this show. And it's this out of control uh, judicial system that we have in this country. And they have been allowed to do this. They have been allowed to do this by our by our Congress, by the legislative branch. The legislative branch has the constitutional authority to draw them back to b- draw them back in. Um, it is not uh, part of the Constitution that we have all these separate uh, layers of justice system. That that is not. I mean, actually, the only only thing in the Constitution is the Supreme Court. So this is all kind of like uh, us kind of making this up as we go. So all of this could be pulled back if we wanted to. The The Congress has authority to do that, but they refuse to. They refuse to. And even the executive branch has the authority. And, and Trump, and I, this is what I wish would happen. My Okay, my dream, Trump 
be it, that he is Trump and that he steps in and he tells the judiciary, judiciary and he tells this justice in, in Hawaii to step off. That's what he needs to do. Just step off, back up, and this is what we're doing. Because he has the authority to do this. You know, we talk about these co-equal branches of government because you obviously have checks and balances. But if there is one branch of government that is supreme, especially when it comes to foreign policy, it is what? The president. Mm -hmm. Now, think about the irony of having first a federal judge, not even an appeals court judge, much less a Supreme Court judge, but a federal judge first in Seattle, now in Honolulu, Hawaii, countermanding the commander in chief. This is a very significant issue. Imagine in war. And, of course, aren't we on a war and terror right now yeah. in which one judge That's in right. one jurisdiction can tell the president of the United States that what he's doing for the safety of the country is unconstitutional based upon something that isn't even reasonably argued, uh, which would actually be thrown out of some of the moot courts and some of the law schools today. And that's exactly where we're headed is for our judicial system to make determinations about if we go to war, where we go to war, when we go to war and who we go to war with. It is, you know, among the many points that are just very troubling about this. You know, it, the quote, the uh, excerpt you heard earlier from Mark Corian, he made references. There's a federal law a, on, on the books passed by Congress, federal law, that says the president shall have authority to uh, exclude any aliens, any class of aliens, period, full stop. And the recognition of the recogni- or the reason Congress would have passed this is because of the recognition of the need that the president has access to information related to national security. He gets reports from all sorts of national security sources. As president, he knows things about the countries of origin of people he may want to stop coming here, from coming here, that this judge would have no idea. This is a judge who's assuming the worst motive possible, which is you're just being mean and it's about you're picking on a certain class of people. But it's a judge who didn't even stop to think, apparently, that maybe what information the president and others in our national security uh, apparatus in Washington are aware of. This, and this is it go, this arrogance of the judiciary thing. Laura, I'm glad you mentioned that point. We talked about before in the show, but the Constitution only sets up in terms of federal courts, leaving aside state courts and state Supreme Courts and state trial courts on the federal level. There's one court the Constitution requires, and that's the Supreme Court. Now, these lower courts, a trial court at the federal level is called the district court, and the appellate courts are the courts of appeal, and the, or they're the circuit courts is the other term for those. Those are created by Congress. They can be ended by Congress. They can have the jurisdiction limited by Congress. Yep. Yep. They can say, you know, henceforth, yep. federal district court shall have no authority whatsoever to rule on cases involving visa applications, cases involving refugees. And this is really, I, I think these, these these justices are almost daring the Congress to do this. I would love Congress even more than yep. Trump, Congress to do it. Oh, well. yeah. You know, one other point I want to make is that limiting of appellate jurisdiction. Um, who's the last person to actually do that? Harry Reid. Most people do not. The Democrats have used it, and the Republicans mm-hmm. never have. The last never. time they've actually limited appellate jurisdiction was done by Harry Reid. Just one of do those you know what, he, what it was about? Oh, it was about it had something had to do with the BLM and the forestry and something like that. It was a pretty small issue, but still, Democrats have used it for years. Republicans are going, oh, I don't think we can do that. Yeah, it's in the Constitution. I think America 
chose Trump because they want someone to be bold. They're dying to have the GOP be bold, to really repeal Obamacare, to push through this this budget and then a more extreme one next time. In this case, stop these courts from taking over America. We've got 30 seconds. That's why Trump needs to be the one that says it because then the, the Congress will follow because they do not have the Backbone. fortitude to do it. Yeah. You know, this is a really it sounds it's funny because even if you think if you're sitting there thinking, uh, you know, listening to the show, I really think this refugee order was too harsh. I feel kind of bad. These poor people, they're war torn areas and they need help. It may be that ultimately we would, you would suge- uh, support a different order or a president who would choose a different order. But this really isn't necessarily about the content of the refugee order as much as it is about the rule of law and the separation of powers. And once you decide that the commander in chief no longer really is in charge of securing this country, things change in not a good way. I'm Debbie George Addis, America Can We Talk, and I have Kirby Anderson, Lori Medina here. And it's our last segment coming up, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Our nation faces a choice, the path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility, whether informed the national debate on property rights, energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more. Hi, this is Debbie George Addis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility when politicians propose solutions to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. There is a lot of talk today among media, in academia, in our culture, about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? In schools, on cable television, in newspapers? It's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield. 
FLAG is a nonprofit battle tank working to change the cultural and media narrative about America. If you think it's time to stand up for America, join the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness. Your support of FLAG is an investment in the America your children will inherit. Visit their website at flagusa.org and consider donating. All donations are 100% tax deductible. That's flagusa.org. On August 2, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son Mark Allen Lee had been killed, becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the Heroes Hope Home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit americasmightywarriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. And welcome back to our final segment of the shortest two hours of my week. They're actually kind of the most fun two hours of my week. Beside that's right. being a, that's right. I don't love doing this show, but they're also shortest two hours. Let me sure and thank the sponsor for this show. GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. GC Works sponsors our show, and I'm so very grateful for that because I love talking to you about politics and saving this precious country. Okay, so we were talking before the break, and I want to continue on this because I just think this is it's such a, it's a bigger issue than just whether President Trump can get his refugee order in. It's really about what we were talking about before the break, which was you know the inability of the... Um, Left and people and the, to recognize the consequence that could flow to them once you agree the judiciary has more power than your elected officials and can really substitute their judgment on national security for that of the president, which is what the refugee policy is about, it's national security. But I also in Washington, the National Review, which I've now told you numerous times I went to their conference, I also got to meet the brilliant Andrew McCarthy, who I had a wonderful interview with him. I want to play one segment that relates to this Hawaii decision. I had asked him essentially about the Hawaii decision, and here's one what he had to say. Well, I think, I think two things. Number one, you're quite right that the judges are doing politics now. This is not law, and it's the usurpation of the function not only of, of making political choices in a democratic society, but the, the most critical democratic choices that get made are in the area of national security. And in our system, they're supposed to be made by the people who are accountable to the voters, to the public, uh, not by the unaccountable judges. That said... I think we need to recognize that that's the state of play, and it seems to me at this point that it's counterproductive to be doing these executive orders because they were only supposed to be temporary measures aimed at the final goal of having vetting, uh, you know, a vetting process that would, would distinguish the good guys from the bad guys coming into the country. And the reason I think the executive orders are counterproductive now is these courts make these rulings. Trump's people come back and say, no, 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 this isn't about Islam at all. Look, we've, we've, uh, we're not applying it to 85% of the Muslim world. We've now cut off uh, one of the Muslim countries that we're in. Well, you know, look, 
what are we trying to accomplish here? We're trying to figure out who the radical Muslims are versus the moderate or peaceful Muslims. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to vet their belief system. I call it Sharia supremacism. You're going to have to see who are the people who want to impose Sharia's societal structure and Islamic law on the society, and who are the Muslims who don't. And we want to bring, we want to invite the Muslims who don't to apply to come to our country. We don't want the other people. We just don't. So I'm not going to like hide under my bed and pretend that that's not what's going on here. So every time they say this isn't about Islam, I want to tear out what little hair I have <laughs> left on the top of my head because I don't see in the end how it's anything but about Islam. So as long as we have to have this throwdown and fight with the courts, let's fight on the ultimate issue. Let's stop this stupid, uh, you know, these the skirmishes which are getting the administration, I think, to say things that will be harmful to the position they ultimately have to take, which is that this is precisely about Islam. Absolutely it is. I'll tell you, my, what I commented, I just wanted to have you hear that little segment, my comment and reply at that time, and what I want to share today is just this, one reason people loved Donald Trump during the election cycle was because he drew a contrast between the way he spoke about what's happening in the world with the uh, previous administration, the Obama administration, unwilling to ever say radical Islam, to identify radical Islam as a problem. And Donald Trump was willing to say, no, the problem is Islam. And people were just jumping up and down happy. So it's odd that he knew to say that. And he knew and I think it brought people to him. And now we're in this place of defending these refugee orders, and somehow the the wonks have surrounded him and said, oh, you better not say that. He ought to just say, yeah, we're trying to figure out what the problem is here, but I don't know what you guys think about all this. Well, you know, just to be fair here, um, it didn't really just start with Obama. It did start with Bush just days after 9-11 when he was very quick to come out and say, Islam, it's a religion of peace. We're not at war with Islam. Remember, I'm, I'm sure like Jim Baker was whispering in his ears to say that, um, you know, because they didn't want to have a, a war with a, a, a worldwide religion at the time. And I guess that was his motivation behind it. But that set the precedent, I feel like, uh, for us to hide behind this facade, I mean, this falsehood that it is a, a religion of peace. It is not a religion of peace. Why? Why then does that religion want to kill so many people um it is not a religion of peace we know that we have countless examples and um you and i totally agree with andrew mccarthy that we just need we need to speak the truth and that's what people are clamoring for is truth right it's not meanness it's just truth you know back to andrew mccarthy two points one on process one on policy on the process issue i agree with him there is this assumption that by doing an executive order we've done something our previous president used to think, Barack Obama, that by giving a speech, something really happened. Nothing really <laughs> happened at all, right? And there's a sense right now that the Trump administration's maybe bought into this mm-hmm. idea that by doing an executive order, they've done something. They really haven't because the vetting still is not taking place, which brings us back to the other issue. The process maybe needs to change, and I think Andrew McCarthy is right. Stop doing the executive orders. Just implement all of this. And that brings us back to the actual policy itself, and that is we don't want certain individuals in this country that are Sharia supremacists. And so we just, I think, give away the entire game when we say this is not about Islam. 
how many talk shows over the last five to six weeks have we heard people say, well, this is not about Islam? And the answer is, yes, it is. Yep. Now, it's not about all Muslims, but it is about certain individuals. And we've even talked about uh, Ailey Hershey, for example. We've talked mm -hmm. about her before. She says, you know, there are different kinds of refugees. And since she came from Somalia, she understands that. There's some that are really good citizens. There are others that just come here because I want our welfare system. And there are others that want to kill us. Well, I like that first group, but I'm not so sure about the second group, and I'm certain we don't want the third group. And so we have to start talking that way and stop making these silly comments about it's not about Islam. It's about certain Muslims who want to destroy our way of life, and they want to kill us. Well, and, and to your point, Kirby, you're right. It isn't all up Muslim, Muslims, and we all know that. Uh, but, you know, if you look at who Muslims are killing the most, it is other Muslims. Yes, sure is. So The greatest you know, threat to a Muslim is another Muslim. That's right. Yep. And so you would think that these Muslims would be okay with this if it's really ultimately protecting the good ones. If it weren't for the fact they're afraid that some of them are going to be persecuted if they then go along with the, the American yep. experience. Absolutely. I understand that, Absolutely. too. And, you know, and the other thing that I, I guess I'm not sure what— Frankly, whether he said it in this excerpt I just played for you, but you know, I feel a little concerned about the Trump administration pressing this appeal. I think that if we don't have Gorsuch on the Supreme Court by then, and frankly, even if we do, I, I, I worry about and Anthony Kennedy. Um, I'm, I can tell you the libs are all going to be inside of the judge. <laughs> I think it's a dangerous time, to, and there's no reason to get the order before the Supreme Court. It's just like to prove a point that they might end up really damaging yeah. their effort. And the other thing, and I'm so glad we're all talking about this, is you know this concept concept of we want to have this in place because we want to improve vetting procedures, but the vetting procedures do not, to be truly effective, they do not just relate to, can you really confirm the address that your parents lived in when you were right. growing up or where you went to high school? That's not what we're vetting. We're trying to figure out, have you embraced Sharia supremacism or some other radical Islamic view of the world? And that's tough vetting. That means going in your social media saying, what did you post? What did you say? Which person do you follow? Who do you like? What do you, who are you liking on Twitter? Get, it's getting into someone's head to understand how how you think about Islam. This is a very, very complex thing, and you hurt yourself as the administration if you haven't identified that as the problem. Have you ever had questions asked of you at the Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel? Oh, yeah, we just came back from there. Amen. There you go. And if you ask those kinds of questions where you look people in the eye and see whether or not they avert their eyes, that's the kind of thing we need in terms of betting. Oh, it's not, they, they're serious, and they, they look right at you. I actually had—I um, have a—I um, broke my leg last year, and I have a—, a, a um plate and rod and all this junk on my leg so it set off the security thing oh yeah oh yeah and so i i mean they get right in your face and they're and they're just going to say where exactly have you been what i mean they're just really and you know the truth is i love israel and i'm not there to I, i'm there to to honor it and to enjoy it and but i mean that kind of security is exactly kirby i'm glad you met that's the kind of security mm -hmm. you're looking right in their face right. and saying what is it you're all about here because you know as we mentioned before in the show the san bernardino killers mm -hmm. the wife past our famous vetting as a well she a spouse visa something like that yeah. some name like that but i mean it just it's a what i'm getting as a as a grave disservice to our need to get to vetting about substance of your beliefs if you can't even say the purpose of our vetting is to get at your beliefs to, that you're we're trying to pretend it's not it's about you know information from you i just think the issue's gotten i mean i think this, if this is occurring to us even though we're very smart people it's also occurring to people in washington like 
Bannon and Kelly and Conway, who are going to, I hope, bend the president's ear a little bit. Well, and and back to your point, the fact that the Trump administration are waiting for this to move up the up the ranks of the judicial system, allowing it to go through the process, tells you they are allowing that system to be supreme. They they are allowing They're it playing them, the game. Yes, they are allowing the judicial system to make the choices and and make the stances on on uh, national security issues for our country rather than the president. Absolutely. And on that note, we're just about out of time for America Can We Talk tonight. I have a couple of things I wanted to share with you. One is we introduced recently a studio hotline. And so, because I really don't take callers in the show because I only have two hours, but I do have a great studio hotline. You can call anytime, 24 hours a day, and the, and leave a question or a comment for an upcoming show, question about the show or comment about the show or for an upcoming guest. The number is 214-556-5659. Again, I'll say 214-556-5659. I appreciate people calling. You do have to try to leave your call to a minute or less. <laughs> I can't play long messages. So a minute or less would be good. Love to have you call, though. Um, and also wanted to mention that coming up on Tuesday, April 18th, which is now just around the corner, the Park Stays Republican Women is holding a meeting in which I'm speaking, along with Wade Miller, on President Trump's first 100 days. And if you'd like to come to that meeting, I'd love to have you join us. It will be fun, interactive, questions be allowed, and uh, no charge, but you do need to get a hold of me ahead of time. So if you could email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com, americacanwetalk at gmail.com. I'd love to have you join us. And then the last thing I want to say is I just want to thank Greg Lindemood, our extremely wonderful board operator. Thank our guest tonight, who is simply brilliant, Chip Roy. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for my roundtable, Kirby Anderson, Lori Medina, and tune in every week to America Can We Talk. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org. America Can We Talk, truth about America. America.